Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today we return to the archives to re-air the 2019 episode with Mary Catherine Nagel when she was visiting Ann Arbor to give the Burkhoffer Jr. Lecture on Native American Studies. I hope you enjoy this episode from the archives with Mary Catherine Nagel. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have Mary Catherine Nagel here in the studio at WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Um, Mary Catherine Nagel is here to give the 2019 Robert F. Burkhofer Jr. Lecture, Native Theater in the 21st Century, Piercing the Invisibility and Restoring Our Humanity. Mary Catherine Welcome to WCBN. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, it's it's great to see you, and um, and thanks thanks for coming to Ann Arbor. Uh, it's of course. I think I picked a good time of year to come. <laughs> well, and maybe you brought the the lovely weather with you because it's been sort of back and forth for us here in Michigan. Um, yeah. And well, before we get into the conversation today, I'll read uh, a short bio, and we'll go from there. Sounds good. Mary Catherine Nagel is an enrolled citizen of the Cherokee Nation. She currently serves as the executive director of the Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program. She is also a partner at Pipestem Law PC, where she works to protect tribal sovereignty and the inherent right of Indian nations to protect their women and children from domestic violence and sexual assault. Nagel has authored numerous briefs in federal appellate courts, including the United States Supreme Court. Nagel studied theater and social justice at Georgetown University as an undergrad student and received her JD from Tulane Law School, where she graduated summa cum laude and received the John Minor Wisdom Award. She's a frequent speaker at law schools and symposia across the country. Her articles have been published in law review journals, including the Harvard Journal of Law and Gender, among others. Nagel is an alum of the 2012 Public Theater Emerging Writers Group, where she developed her play, Manhattan, in public studio. In 2019, Portland Center Stage will produce the world premiere of Crossing Minishoshi. Thank you, Mary Catherine. (laughs) 
I did mean to ask you about the pronunciation. <laughs> Here I've got my note. Check pronunciation. So thank you for stepping in there. And how exciting. So it is 2019, yes. obviously yes. now, on this occasion of our conversation. Is it is it still upcoming or has it has it happened? It or? will open on April 19th. Wow. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. oh that's exciting. Yeah. So very exciting. Um and and will you be there for it? What yes. sort of things are are happening in the the like coming up to its uh, uh, staging. Well, right now they're in rehearsals and um, most of the changes that I think I'll do to the script are pretty much done, at least for now, before this production. And um, this is the world premiere. So it's the first time it's being produced. They're still staging, but they're actually moving in, you know, they're still rehearsing, but they're moving into the actual stage and the set is being put into place um, probably as we speak. So um, they will start technical rehearsals pretty soon. And then I think next Friday, April 12th is the first is the dress rehearsal. So it's all happening very fast. And, and so how, how are you, it's, it's amazing to think of, you know, we just sort of uh, flew through your bio there. Um, but being a playwright is one of like, of the many things that you, (laughs) that you do. Um, how is it you're able to, to, to build the time into your, your, your work life? Uh, it's a, it's a constant challenge. I, uh, did not anticipate, having plays produced and having the the sort of success, I suppose you could say, that I've had in the theater. So I didn't really build it into any kind of (laughs) infrastructure or framework. I've just been like going as fast as I can and as best as I can to get all the work done. Um, And it's a joy. I love everything that I do, but it it really is a challenge. And, um, you know, all I can say is it's working for right now, whether it'll still work two months from now or six months from now or six years from now, I don't know uh, because there's just only so much time in the day. And at the end of the day, I can, you know, um, again, I just, I never anticipated, you know, so much of playwriting is rejection. And so I think the first time you get your play produced, it's like, okay, wow, that's amazing. And the second time is like, wow, that's amazing too. And the third time it's like, huh, what's happening here? The fourth time I was like, okay. And now it's, you know, it's, I'm so blessed to have continuing productions. Um, I didn't anticipate that. So it's going to probably take some real thinking because um, it's a lot right now. (laughs) It's definitely a lot. Well, and it's intersecting with with your work, mm-hmm. your work with um, your legal work is working with pr- protecting the the rights of Native American women and children, mm-hmm. um, and so and these stories, the plays that you're writing. Um, well, tell us a little bit, if you don't mind. Let's talk about the themes of the plays and why these stories m- matter to be told. Sure, to me they matter because. Well, we're in the United States of America. I think it's important for all Americans to know American history, but most Americans don't. And, you know, I have had theaters tell me, you know, most theaters in the United States have never produced a single play by a Native playwright. That's starting to change. I mean, um, we're seeing theaters produce their first Native playwright, which is great. 
uh, but when I'd have conversations with them, let's say 10 years ago or five years ago, when they still had never produced a single native playwright, they'd say, well, you know, stories about native people just aren't necessarily relevant to most Americans because, you know, you're such a small percentage of the population and we don't want plays about historical issues. We want plays about contemporary issues that are relevant to Americans today. I had numerous people in the American theater across the country, but mostly in New York, tell me that. <laughs> um, and uh, I will say, truly, mostly in New York. And, you know, I really had to step back and think about that. Of course, I was enraged when I first heard those yes. words, right? How dare you say me or my people are irrelevant. But I really had to step back and think about what does that mean to hear that? It, it is true that we are a very small percentage of the population. I mean, we've survived a genocide. There's a reason for that. But... Um, but are we really irrelevant to non-Native Americans? And I don't think that we are, but I had, I said, well, to myself, I said, I have to show that. And so in the plays that I've written that are now getting produced, specifically Manhattan was my kind of immediate and first response to that. Cause, cause I went, I just said, okay, look, if what happened to us is irrelevant, um, how do you explain the 2008 housing crisis? Because that's ex okay. What is happening in 2008 on Wall Street is a repeat of what the Dutch did on that same street in the 1600s. And if we're not supposed to talk about it, then why are we upset when it keeps happening, but now to non-Native Americans? And to me, that's a, a direct example of why our stories are not irrelevant to non-Native Americans. Um, and, and what you're referencing, uh, Mary Catherine, with the with the Dutch coming in to the, like the island of Manhattan, mm -hmm. is that right? And um, the... The, the native uh, people, uh, mm -hmm. is it Lenape? I, yes. Uh, is yes. It, okay. Lenape. Uh, Lenape. Mm -hmm. So th these people were then pushed off mm -hmm. the island when the Dutch came mm -hmm. and built a wall. Yes, they actually um, built a wall. That's why Wall Street's called Wall Street. The Dutch built a wall on that street. The whole reason Wall Street became the heartbeat of the American economy was because it was the heartbeat of an indigenous economy that predates the United States. So that the the trading trail that went up and down Manhattan Island, which the Dutch called the Broadway because so many native folks had walked up and down this trail. It was diagonal um, for years that it, the you know, the plants and everything, you know what happens when you all walk on a trail. So they called it the Broadway because it was like the one place on this marshy, rocky island where um, you could just walk on a, on a path. And I mean, there were probably other paths, but it was the Broadway. It was the biggest one. And it was that was how the artery for trading. So other tribes would come down and um, and this was a major trading trail. Of course, that is now the, the road called Broadway in in Manhattan Island yes and so but and these are seriously these are historical facts yeah. like this yeah. is part of the story yeah. of well, the land my my dear mentor um Suzanne Harjo who's an incredible writer and activist herself uh has always said you know our history is american history right native history is american history treaties that's american history uh it's it's such it, uh, a lie and, and an untruth to say that what's happened to native people on this on this continent isn't American history or isn't relevant. Of course, there's a reason that said that narrative, that idea, that erasure was created 
um, hundreds of years ago for to, to serve a very specific purpose that I think most Americans would say is no longer the case today. We're not trying to achieve a genocide, but yet the narratives that it did achieve that or didn't quite achieve that genocide, but were used to attempt the genocide, those narratives haven't been replaced yet. So we're still combating some of those same narratives that were used to erase our people hundreds of years ago. And we're still trying to deconstruct those narratives. And one of them is that our stories are irrelevant, our true stories. And so, and so part of, yeah, the true stories. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, and so in your own personal history, Mary mm-hmm. Catherine, so, um, young Mary Catherine growing mm-hmm. up, um, you, you always wanted to be a lawyer. Yes. Well, I learned at a very young age, my grandmother, um, had the portraits of Major Ridge and John Ridge hanging on her wall. And she would frequently, you know, tell me the story of how John Ridge was one of the first native. And that's my great, great, great grandfather. Her great grandfather was one of the first native attorneys in the history of the United States. And that in the 1830s, when Andrew Jackson, President Andrew Jackson, was trying to eradicate Cherokee Nation and pretty much all tribal nations, but he was very focused on the Southeast and specifically the Seminole and Cherokee and Creek and Choctaw and Chickasaw. Um, When he was focused on eradicating those nations, it was the United States Supreme court in a case that my grandfather worked on where the Supreme court said, no, Cherokee nation has a right to exist. No one, no sovereign except Cherokee nation can exercise jurisdiction on Cherokee nation lands. And that's a huge, huge victory in 1832. Um, And my grandfather played a major role in that. And to me, as a kid growing up, I think I felt the message of my grandmother was at a time when the United States executive branch of government and legislative branch both were working together to eradicate us. The judicial branch, the Supreme Court, recognized our right to exist. And so to me, in my mind, I I ascribed this almost like sacredness to the Supreme Court. And I've just I've always I've always felt like the Supreme Court even though I don't agree with every decision they make, there there is something I can't even quite explain it better than what I just did, but it's even deeper than that. I just feel a connection to the court and a reverence for it. And maybe it's because we need to have a hope in something <laughs> and that if there is a group of people gathered together who will, um, who are intelligent and who will listen, mm-hmm. um, they may be able to see through things or find what... Yes. is the necessary matter or truth or absolutely at that time you know most americans were pushing for policy that would remove and eliminate tribal nations because it was it was in their self financial interest right i mean you've got all these industries that want to expand cotton slavery uh tobacco gold mining um all these you know um, industries that want to expand but can't because tribal nations are there, right? The entire United States is covered in them. So what do you do? You fight to eradicate and remove them so that your industry can expand. That was what most Americans were for in the early 1800s. Well, most Americans who could vote at that time, of course, we know who was left out. Um, but, you know, for for justices on the Supreme Court, and again, we know they're not um, facing election, so maybe, and I, you know, I think that's a good thing at the end of the day. Uh, Justice Marshall, Justice McLean, these justices were very sympathetic to tribal nations, and in particular, Cherokee Nation. And it also seems at that point, um, with the the Trail of Tears and with other like the the people had been pushed from lands that they had been occupying, like the Lenape. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and been pushed further out and further out. And mm-hmm. then, then these were the, the land, like the, na- the, the nations that were recognized, Mary Catherine, as sovereign, this new sort of, well, like the land that had maybe became reservations or well, we, we didn't technically, well, whether or not, I don't, whether or not we technically or legally had a reservation in the 1830s is a little bit complicated. Okay. We did have territory described and, um, and articulated in, in treaties, mm. you know, so we had legal documents about where our boundaries were, but, um, the legal term reservation, I think came about a little bit later actually. And, um, and that seems like a con, uh, a complicated term. It is, apparently. We've got a case up in front of the Supreme Court about it right now. So, you know, you think, as a tribe, you think you sign a treaty and you have a reservation. And reservation, you know, treaties are the supreme law under the Constitution. And you think, okay, great. You know, the Supreme Court, I mean, the United States Constitution says once the president signs a treaty and the Senate ratifies it, it's the supreme law of the land. The president ratified or signed this treaty. The Senate ratified it. We have this reservation. Then you come to find out that Oklahoma is arguing 150 years later that that's not valid and that you don't have that reservation. It's to me, it's it's irrational and un, and um, unfounded. But yet, it is an argument that a lot of people in Oklahoma, um, especially the state, are arguing right now. It seems like it would have to be unfounded in a nation um, that believes in law, the rule of law. I think if you believe in the U.S. Constitution, you got to uphold the the fact that treaties are the supreme law of the land. It's in the Constitution. Let's take a short break. When we come back more today with Mary and Catherine Nagel, I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. The treaty story, of course, begins before there was a United States because it was nation to nation amongst the native nations and the European nations. The story is told with lies, lies, lies. The treaty signed. The founding of this country, the U.S. government has made and broken over 500 treaties with various Indian tribes all across our nation. All was lost. The treaty signed. unilateral agreements between two sovereigns, meaning that it was uh, and indigenous people here and the U.S. government, and it was equal. We still retain that. The other way that it's supported and retained, even though the U.S. government refuses sometimes to recognize that, and maybe these younger people that are listening to this can change this, because this is about healing. It's about forgiving. Do you know what the sixth article of the U.S. Constitution is? That treaties are the supreme law of the land. It actually says that in the U.S. Constitution. Treaties are the supreme law of the land. The treaties Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm so glad you did. Mary Catherine Nagel is here in the studio today. Um, Mary Catherine is in town. She is the 2019 Robert F. Burkhofer Jr. Lecturer. 
And the topic is Native Theater in the 21st Century, Piercing the Invisibility and Restoring Our Humanity. Um, we've got Steph Behind the Glass. I'm T. Hetzel. Mary Catherine, thanks for picking the songs, too, for today's program. Absolutely. So what were we just listening to? Uh, that's Frank Wong, who is um, a hip-hop artist from, um, he's Lakota from uh, the Rosebud Sioux tribe. And that's his song Treaties, which I am a huge fan of. And I I love that song for many reasons. I mean, musically, it's just a beautiful, inspiring song, but also because of the voices of certain people he has interspliced into the song. And so it's it's awesome to me that earlier I just brought up in in the interview Suzanne Harjo, who's a dear friend of mine and a mentor and a co-conspirator. And so she was the very first voice that we heard. We also... um, I don't know if we got to Kevin Gover because I know he's in that song somewhere. He's currently the executive director of the National Museum of the American Indian. And he, so there's all these different amazing native leaders and uh, talking about what treaties are today. Uh, Cecilia Fire Thunder, who is the former president of um, the Ogallala Nation at Pine Ridge. She was the one who said treaties are the supreme law of the land, uh, which we were just talking about. So it's very perfect, perfect timing. Well, and thank you. Thanks for picking the songs for today's show, um, Mary Catherine. Um, you know, so let's talk about the your talk, <laughs> your lecture that you're gonna you're going to to give um, Native Theater in the 21st Century, piercing the invisibility and restoring our humanity. Um, so Native Theater, it, it it seems vital as a way to tell the stories of the the present the like what's happening now with mm-hmm. with people mm-hmm. as well as the past and mm-hmm. you seem in your work to be able to connect the two to bring mm-hmm. maybe because of the feedback you were getting at those um new york city uh, theater companies about making something uh, yeah, you know, I so there are a lot of really talented Native playwrights who focus their work solely on contemporary stories, and I think that is very important and powerful. For whatever reason, I am drawn to stories of the past. Um, I think in part because of the comments I heard about, you know, <laughs> what happened to Natives in the past is irrelevant to non-Natives today. It's like, I, okay, now I'm just hell-bent on... Proving it. Yeah, proving it, right? <laughs> like, I'm just going to prove that wrong. This is the lawyer in you as well, so, <laughs> as the storyteller. <laughs> yeah, so I've really taken that on directly. I, and I really do believe that if we as a country, as a nation, the United States, if we live in ignorance of how we came to be who we are today, we will only perpetuate the harms of the past. And I I don't think that actually serves anyone, you know, even president Trump, I think would have a better life if he didn't repeat the injustices of the past. I I truly believe that. So I, I like connecting the past to the present. It is connected. Whether or not we see the connections, it's there. I think not seeing them only harms us. And and you use your casting with particular characters mm-hmm. in your plays, in your work to show. Can you talk a little bit about that, Mary Catherine? Yeah. That's, how that works? I just sort of... Um, when I when I first started, Manhattan was the first play I did this with. And again, I started with the purpose of I have to answer all these people who are telling me that our stories are irrelevant, right? How do I show that what happened to us is happening to everyone today? And, and that I really want to show it's just a cycle. It's a repetition. It's a pattern. 
we could choose to break free of that pattern, but that would require conscious choice. And you don't have conscious choice if you're living in ignorance, right? Mm -mm. So part of that, dr dramatically, I just thought, what would it, what would it look like if, you know, and, and I saw the patterns. I mean, I thought, okay, look at what's happening with Lehman Brothers today and take the Dutch West India Company of the 1600s. And so I said, what, and, and I, you know, I did a lot of historical research and when I was reading about Peter Minuet, who was like the first, one of the first governors of the Dutch West India Company that came out here when, um, when the Dutch were colonizing here. And I thought, what if that actor played Peter Minuet and also the um, CEO, Dick Fold of Lehman Brothers? And I just thought, what does, and I started thinking about how interesting and exciting that connection is, right? What does that parallel say? Um, if the person who claims to have purchased the entire island from the Lenape for essentially, you know, $24 in 1626 is now the CEO of the America's third largest investment bank on the wall, on the street where the wall was built to keep the Lenape out of their homeland after that purchase. And I, the parallels and the connections were so strong that I just, I built the rest of the play. There are seven actors in Manhattan. Every actor plays someone from the past and someone from the present. And there is a connection almost. I like to say that my characters, you know, uh, people in theater like to talk about character arcs. You know, actors like to focus on them. Directors focus on them. Dramaturgs focus on them. My characters have those. It's a two character arc that is one arc. You know, you start somewhere with one character and you, you arc fully through the past into the present and you see it's a full, it's a, it's a, you know, it's almost like one character really. And so are you, and then the experience then for the audience would mm -hmm. then also be to see this cycle mm -hmm. enacted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, the world premiere was at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival this last year. The audience was with us. They got it. They they saw more parallels than I intentionally put in the play because, you know, they're there. I'm not fabricating them, but some of them I think about very clearly in my mind. And I'm like, oh, I need to write this scene and this scene for, you know, to make. But then some things they just see and I didn't think, oh, I put this in the play. It's just there. And that's been really exciting to hear the audience um, pick up on those things. Well, well, also with, I think, as a playwright, that must be mm -hmm. part of what you see as that being actually made because mm -hmm. you're uh, you're the writer mm -hmm. of it and you're imagining and you're you're making these choices mm -hmm. structurally mm -hmm. um but the moment for it to be the thing that you want yeah you need the audience absolutely absolutely yeah and that's i mean theater is nothing without the audience because you're it's a, you know, it's a two-way street between the actors, well, you and the actors and the audience. So do you think, um, also considering your past and what you, we, uh, do you think then that this is a medium that's the, the right one for you because it's also uh, a medium for social justice, a way to use stories to engage people and implicate them in the stories or absolutely I, I think theater and film are great means as well but there's a very unique thing that happens in live theater 
with the shared experience with all the audience in there at the same time and the energy that can build with what's happening on stage and you can't escape it. There's no commercial break. You know, you might you might get intermission, but there's no getting up. You know, well, some people do go to the bathroom. Okay, but um, <laughs> you know, you you're you're in it, and you're in it with other people, and you're watching live these people tell these stories. There's a, I think, a deeper connection, and I think, you know, in terms of combating the erasure of native people, watching an actual native person on stage. Um, I think for a lot of non-Native Americans is an incredibly transformative process because they never have before. I think it's really great to see Native people in film and TV too, don't get me wrong. But I think when a non-Native person sees that on stage in person, there's a re-humanization um, that happens in a very profound way, I think. And it makes it a lot more difficult to just objectify and other Native people when they're right in front of you in a very authentic way. And part of that is... Is it part of what's built into the stories you're choosing to tell? I hope so. <laughs> I, that's my goal, you know. Uh, I hope so. That's what I, I hope to achieve, for and, sure. And so, how, like, how, how do you see that happening then? Um, you know, I do try to deconstruct stereotypes, um, but mostly I don't approach the stereotypes head on. I try to just put real native characters. Um, you know, largely based off of people I've known in my life or I'm related to or, um, you know, um, or through your research, the stories that mm -hmm, you've mm -hmm. uncovered. Yeah. Um, again, you know, we're combating erasure. So, um, you know, the way to combat erasure is to put a real authentic person in front of everyone and say, nope, we're still here. Actually, you know, we're not what you saw in Disney's Pocahontas and we're not from Dances with Wolves. Um, you know, we're also not what you, you know, saw on House of Cards, that whole fake casino episode or, you know, any of the stuff in, in public media right now or mainstream Hollywood, right? Like we're none of that, but we are here and we have powerful stories to share. And so you're seeing that because I think you mentioned too in um, maybe in the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt there oh. scenes because I... Mm -hmm. reading preparing for our talk today uh -huh. i was there so you're like so what you're seeing out there in culture is there's a lot of these stereotypes being um i don't know being a part of what is like in pop culture absolutely which is also damaging and because there's erasure and then there's mm -hmm. complete misconception mm -hmm. absolutely which feels like a almost another type of, like another erasure yes it is um, so most non-Native Americans only experience Natives through football jerseys, right? Like the mascot on the back of a football jersey. Or maybe they've seen Peter Pan, you know, and they heard the song, What Makes the Red Men Red, Men Red uh, or however it goes. I can't do the grunting quite the right way. but um, For the best. Know, yeah. For the best. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how most non-Native Americans interact with Natives, right? And um, and so, yeah, I'm hoping to really counteract that with an authentic presentation and and the stories and and you found i think when you were in your study of the law um that there are ways like the law is needed to change things right and to protect and to stand up for rights mm -hmm. but the power of stories mm -hmm. can be so valuable in mm -hmm. change as well absolutely that's how we're going to change the law I truly believe that once American theaters, once we have more American theaters that have produced a single native playwright than have not, 
when we hit that day, I think we'll start to see a real change in the law. Because the audience yeah. will have new experiences Because our judges who sit ideas. on state and federal courts won't be completely ignorant as to who Native people are and what tribal sovereignty is. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, more today with Mary Catherine Nagel, the 2019 Robert F. Burkhofer Jr. Lecture, um, Native Theater in the 21st Century, Piercing the Invisibility and Restoring Our Humanity. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. And we'll be back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. Mary Catherine Nagel is here. Mary Catherine Nagel is the 2019 Robert F. Burkhofer Jr. Lecturer, Native Theater in the 21st Century, Piercing the Invisibility and Restoring Our Humanity, um, will be the talk. Um, so let's talk about the talk. Sure. <laughs> Mary Catherine, um, when you were... Um, were you, when you were invited to come, uh, what were you, were you given, like, what do you want to talk about, Mary Catherine? Like, is that sort of what happens and how did you decide that this was going to be, um, the lecture? Well, uh, I was very honored to be asked to come and speak. I, you know, I consider it a huge honor and I'm just so thankful to the entire, um, American Culture Studies Department here for inviting me in the Native American Studies Department and everyone involved in that decision. Um, you know, Dr. Bethany Hughes, who's a professor here at the university, is kind of the initial person who reached out to me. And we've been friends and colleagues for a little while now. And I've, we've kind of both been following each other's work. And, you know, I'm I'm so excited by her work because I've always said you know, red face, the, you know, the dehumanization of us through red face contributes directly to the legal framework, um, the stripping of the sovereignty and jurisdiction of our tribal nations. 
I say that I didn't have the research necessarily to prove it. And and Dr. Bethany Hughes is, is actually doing that work right now. She's actually going back and documenting the instances of red face in the early 1800s, how prevalent that performance was, how popular it was incredibly popular in the United States. And all the plays that were written by non-natives about us in the early 1800s, where, you know, a native person comes on stage and says, me want corn and huh. You know, how and all that, all that stuff that is not who we are. It's we've never been that, but was used to uh, dehumanize us. Well, you know, you can't have a legal. I mean, that's where blackface comes from. Right. I think most Americans understand how the minstrel shows were, were dehumanizing and why when white people were putting on blackface in the early 1800s and even past that, um, mm-hmm. how, how the goal was to dehumanize. Well, because if you're going to have a legal framework that says this human life isn't worth much, they're, they're just a commodity, slavery, you have to dehumanize them in the culture. You, you, can't, you can't humanize them and say, well, they're equal to us. They're my brother. They're my sister. They're sacred in God's eyes, but they're a commodity, right? You have to say, no, they're not sacred. They're, they're different than us. We're sacred. They're not. And that's, that was what blackface achieved. Redface did the exact same thing. These people aren't us. They're not human. They're characters to be laughed at, to be killed on stage, to be mocked. They're ignorant. They're savages. They're beasts. And that's what Red Face achieved. And those performances were highly popular because they, again, they played into the manifest destiny romantic notion of what the United States was in its very early days. And those performances have not gone away. Um, so I'm very thankful to the work that, that Bethany Hughes, Dr. Hughes is doing. I think it'll be very useful, in, in especially in the work I do, even in the legal field. Because, you know, to me, it's no surprise that one of the most popular performances of Red Face ever, Metamora, came about in 1829, one year after Andrew Jackson was elected president. And his campaign was get rid of tribal nations, get rid of Indians. They need to disappear. And at the same time, one of the most popular performances in the East Coast was a white guy playing an Indian in red face who dies on stage. Right. So we're at this moment where the political will of the country is kill them, get rid of them. And culturally, we're saying, OK, they're dying and we're all going to, you know, cry about the the inauthentic red face image of them romantically dying on stage. We're romanticizing this death that we're enacting through law and policy right now. And. The problem with all of this is that that red face performance hasn't gone away. It, it's, you know, there have been shows that major American theaters in the last 10 years have taken to Broadway that use red face. And yeah, so my goal, and I've been having lots of conversations with different artistic directors across the United States, I'd say in particular over the last 10 years. Before that, you know, just to be clear, my conversations are not new. We've had native leaders, activists, and artists for ever since Red Face was invented say, please don't do that. Right. <laughs> please, please don't use our culture in this inauthentic way. Please don't dehumanize us. Please don't do this. And we've just never been listened to. So what I'm saying is not new. I'm not the inventor of this request, right? I'm just, I just happen somehow to be alive at a time when for the first time in American history, there are non-native artistic directors saying, you're right. We're, let's do a play by a native playwright about native people instead of a, a play by a non-native playwright that does red face. That's just never happened before. So, but 
in the last 10 years before it really started to change, I did have some very interesting conversations with non-Native, mostly white artistic directors at theaters where they would say, well, um, you know, when we do a play with Red Face, we're not trying to we're not trying to dehumanize you. We're being funny. We're being witty. We're being satirical. And so I was like, really, let's, let's look at the definition of satire. I think when you're satire is like a purposeful form of art, it's not an accidental ha ha. You're, you're actually, you know, making a commentary on something that's already in the culture. So, um, I said, can you tell me where red face comes from? Where was the first performance of red face? And I never, I never once saw one of the artistic directors who was programming Redface tell me about Metamora or about any of the plays in the early 1800s where Redface really became popular in the United States. So to me, I'm like, well, how can you say it's satire if you're repeating a performance in the 1800s? You don't know the origins of that performance. You don't know why it was originally created. You don't know for what purpose. You're just repeating it. That's not satire mm, no <laughs> you know i i think that's just bad art you know <laughs> i mean if yeah. I, it's like i saw a, a guy farting and doing jumping jacks in the parking lot last week i don't know why he was farting and doing jumping jacks but it was interesting i'm just going to repeat that and call it satire right it's like that's not that's not satire you know so so that's my mission i and i, I really truly believe because i've had a lot of artistic directors tell me too well we don't we don't censor artists so if an artist needs to put red face in their play we're not going to tell them not to it's like okay all right <laughs> you know but what um, about educating people well, or asking and questions you know what? about I, I truly believe well this is what i would always say first i'd say excuse me Let's just have a dis agree to disagree on whether or not there's artistic value to red face. Mm -hmm. I think right now, because of our lack of understanding where it comes from, performing it doesn't carry much artistic value. Maybe it will in the future when we have a foundation to understand its origins and we're critiquing it, right? Maybe it really will someday be satire. But for it to ever be that, we have to know where it came from. And we don't right now in this country. So let's just agree to disagree because you see artistic value in it. I don't. Aside from that, though, isn't there artistic value in a diversity of perspectives on stage? So if you're going to do the um, inauthentic, stereotypical performance of Native identity, why not also do at the same time, if you're going to do one play with red, red face in your season, add a play by a Native playwright? Why are you only doing red face? And that was something no one could answer either. It's like, well, we're not against doing native playwrights. I'm like, well, then produce one. And they'd say, well, I don't know one. I'm That's like, what I was going to ask that if that was the next thing. And I was like, was we've said. got 500, you know, right. like, right. and I was like, you know, so always what I'd say is, can I send you five, 10, 20? You tell me how many native plays you want me to send you. I'll send them to you all by different native playwrights. So. I've, you know, all and admit, so many of us have been doing that. I mean, Native Voices at the Autry, Randy Reinholtz and Jean Bruce Scott, there's the only Native equity theater company run by Natives for Natives, you know, programming Native playwrights out in L.A. Um, they've been doing so much work to the same thing, right? Having all these conversations with artistic directors around the country to say, please produce your first Native playwright. Please just do that. And so it is starting to happen. Um, it is very exciting that it is starting to happen. And I think um, there are a lot of also people, allies in other communities, like not just in the native theater community, but other communities of color that are doing um, what is called arts equity work. And so they're going into a lot of theaters and they're saying, okay, how does the Asian American community feel in your theater? How does the African American community feel? How does the Latinx community feel? How does the LGBTQIA, you know, two spirit community feel in your theater? Because, you know, a lot of it, 
um, I'm also a part of this amazing group called the Jubilee. And you can, there's Google it, Jubilee Theater. We're we're working with as many theaters as possible to in the in the year of 2020, the season of 2020, to convince theaters to program underrepresented voices. And so the question we're asking is, what would it look like if every theater in the United States for one year programmed the voices that have been excluded from the American stage. So that's black playwrights, Latinx playwrights, LGBTQ2 spirit, disabled, differently abled playwrights, deaf playwrights, blind playwrights, native playwrights, women playwrights, right? Like, I think it's, I, I could be a little bit wrong on the statistics, but like 83% of the plays produced in the United States are by white, straight, heterosexual Protestant men, you know? So it, it's, it's really crazy. So, so, um, you know, obviously that's not the country we live in. Um, or we'd probably have a population crisis that we don't have because we'd be like, oh my gosh, only 17, you know, well, less than 17% of the population can probably procreate at this point. So, um, so why is that the way, why is that the reality on our stages? And so Jubilee is all about bringing just whose voices have we marginalized? Can we do a season with all the voices that have so far been erased? Right. And what will that look like? And it's so exciting. So I just want to say, you know, we are reaching this moment where for the first time in the history of the United States, non-native theater companies, major ones, you know, big off-Broadway theaters, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, Arena Stage in Washington, D.C. These are major regional theaters who routinely send plays to Broadway, right? These are um, big, big deal theaters are doing their first native playwrights. That is because of all the hard work of our native advocates in our native theater community for decades and, you know, years going back. It's also because of our allies, you know, the, the, the folks like Leslie Ishii, who's Japanese American and has been working really hard around the country to get Japanese American voices into the American theater, but has also always insisted, where are the native playwrights, right? It's, it's allies like that, that, um, you know, have, have really brought us along and I just, I have a lot of gratitude to those folks as well. And so across the, for Jubilee, um, is it, is the idea that there could be playhouses in every community and towns, like as, as mm -hmm. well as like the bigger cities and or... university theater departments. You, so okay. university of Michigan's theater department could sign on and it's very easy. You sign the pledge. So I, it's just horrible. I should know the website. I want to say it's jubilee.org, but you know how sometimes that, that domain was already purchased. And, um, even though I'm on the like steering committee or the, you know, uh, producers Google, committee, Google can yeah. help. Well, it's like, <laughs> or your preferred. Yes. So if you just Google <laughs> Jubilee theater, 2020, I guarantee you it'll be like the first thing that comes up. And you can see on there the theaters that have already pledged. You can see the pledge. You can, there's an, a frequently asked questions page. And there's also a way to ask questions if you want to reach out to um, the different folks who are working on it. So um, I just hope everyone takes a look at that. Excellent. And because I think that, um, I wonder if someone listening, if they, if they're inspired, if they want to have a play, yeah. is there a way to reach out and, and get plays that well, could be potentially. That's an someone should create that database too. And I know there are different groups who've created like, um, self-identified, like here's, here's an online thing where you can submit your plays. If you're a woman, mm -hmm. you know, here, here's the online database for this and that, but this is more getting the commitments from theaters and other entities that produce plays. Also individuals can sign on and say, I joined the, the Jubilee too, and I'm pledging to the Jubilee. And it seems important also that the actors be native as well critical to me i will only cast native actors to play native people let's take a quick break and when we come back let's pick up with that okay today on the program mary Catherine nagel is here 2019 robert f burkoff for junior lecture um and 
Mary Catherine will be talking about native theater in the 21st century, piercing the invisibility and restoring our humanity. That's what we're talking about today, too, on Living Writers. We'll be back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Mary Catherine Nagel is here. Mary Mary Catherine Nagel is in town uh, to give the 2019 Robert F. Burkhofer Jr. Lecture, Native Theater in the 21st Century, Piercing the Invisibility and Restoring Our Humanity. Mary Catherine, thanks for being here, talking with me today. Thanks for picking the songs. Yeah, well. that was Kaylin Fay, who um, is Cherokee Creek. She's an incredible artist. That was her song, Tulsa. Uh, but she just came out with an, uh, that's on her older album, and she just came out with a new album. And she's amazing, and I love, love, love her music. So I encourage everyone to check her out. Kaylin, K A L Y N, Fay, F A Y. Thanks, Mary Catherine. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the right before the break, we were talking about Jubilee. What, mm-hmm. what, the, the the wave of um, theater coming mm-hmm. potentially mm-hmm. if it's building for 2020 um, and talking about the importance of a multiplicity of voices uh, mm-hmm. and the casting yes uh, so well so for so long um, you know to me the most important thing is for native people to write native stories because for so long they've been written by non-natives, right? But regardless of whether or not a native character is written by a native person or a non-native person, the native character on stage needs to be played by a native person. We This is another part of the erasure of having non-natives play us. And it, it leads to this idea that there just aren't any natives around. I mean, so often when a theater wants to do its first native play, they say, look, um, you know, we're, your play is great. We love it. It's not your play that's the problem. It's just we don't know any native actors. We don't have any. And I'm like, oh, wow. You know, because there are so many talented native actors. But... They haven't been given opportunities on stages like this, and the stages just don't know they exist. And also, you know, they're being told by what they see in the movies that, you know, when a movie like Wind River comes out, instead of casting a Native person to play a Native person, they cast a Chinese-American person. And, you know, nothing against Chinese-American people, but they're not Native, you know. So um, Natives need to play Natives, and that's very important. And so thankfully we have Native voices at the Autry, which, again, you know, 
is the only Native equity playhouse in the country, and they have a Native ensemble. So any Native company that is, or non-Native company is thinking, we want to produce a Native play. If you're saying to yourself, but we don't know of Native actors, first of all, there are some in your local community. You know, reach out. There are Native people all across the United States, right? If either you're next to a land-based tribe, like you're in Oklahoma, where there are 39 different tribes, or you're in an urban area like Kansas City, which there isn't necessarily a quote-unquote reservation nearby, but there are lots of Natives running around living in Kansas City, right? Los Angeles, uh, San Francisco, Chicago, all these cities, Baltimore, they have high urban Indian populations. So cultivate that relationship with the local community and build up your actors in your own community, just like you do with the white community, right? At the same time, Native Voice of the Autry has done a fantastic job of, of really growing and developing a massive network of very talented Native artists. And their Native Ensemble is easily locatable online if you just Google Native Voices of the Autry Ensemble. And will that ensemble, is, is, do you think that they can also come across? Oh, yeah. To- we cast um, my world premiere of Sovereignty at Arena Stage in D.C. We brought out from the Native Voices Ensemble Andrew Roa, Kalani Cuepo, Kyla Garcia. Uh, Jake Hart was from New York. And then Jake Wade was from Alaska. So he's Jake Wade's done a lot of so Jake Hart had done a lot of work with Amerinda, which is the native theater company in New York. And then Jake Wade uh, in Alaska, who's Clinkett, he'd done a lot of work with Perseverance Theater. And they're a non native theater company, uh, but they're fantastic because they've really they're kind of at the forefront in terms of the non native companies actually producing native playwrights. They've produced numerous plays by native playwrights and have done a lot of work with native communities and they're kind of at the forefront of that. So anyways, point is is we we flew in three people from the Native Voices Ensemble in L.A., someone from Alaska and someone from New York. Um, then at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, let's see, Sheila Towsey, well, she was she was sort of already at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival because she had been added to the company the year before. We brought Tannis um, Parento from New York, and she had been doing a Merinda out there. And uh, Rainbow Dickerson, oh gosh, this is horrible. I think, I know she's done some theater all over the place. I think she's in, I know she's in LA now, but I think before she came to Ashland, Oregon, she was doing work in the Midwest. It was either, it might've been Michigan or it might've been Wisconsin, maybe Minnesota. That's horrible. I don't remember, but she was from somewhere in the upper Midwest doing theater professionally. And um, so, you know, we've got native actors all over the country. And it seems like if there is this this concerted effort um, and idea of Jubilee 2020, mm-hmm. it might make space for new um, new organizations or theater groups to start mm-hmm. all over the country because there would be an opportunity. There Absolutely. would be a literal stage for it. Absolutely. I think the more diverse stories we tell, the more everyone's going to feel included in the American theater and it's just going to create more opportunities for people. I do think it's a win-win. Um, I don't, I don't think anyone loses by, by us doing that. No, not at all. And I think it would be wonderful to grow American theater again, especially so it doesn't feel like it's more yeah. the, you know, providence you know, of just some I mean, cities or natives have, have largely been left out of, t- of TV film so far, but in comparison to the American theater, in general, TV and film are more diverse than theater, you know? And so I think in general, part of the theater's biggest challenge is going to be remaining relevant to an, an, a United States that's not just a bunch of white men, you know? 
how is the theater going to do that? And the only way they're going to do that is by um, opening their doors to more voices and to showing the diversity of the United States on their stage. More stories. Mm-hmm. Different more stories. 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 Exactly. New, stories that have always existed, mm-hmm. mind you. Exactly. <laughs> but need to be told exactly. and shared. Um, so we, you mentioned your play Sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Yeah. Let's talk so, a little bit about this. <laughs> yeah. So that play... Um, actually, it tells a lot of the story of, of the treaties and my grandfather's and the history of Cherokee Nation. But the contemporary parallel is a fight to save the constitutionality of the Violence Against Women Act. And um, when the Violence Against Women Act was reauthorized in 2013, Congress restored a portion of the tribal criminal jurisdiction that the Supreme Court eliminated in 1978. So like when my grandfathers were alive, they passed all kinds of criminal laws criminalizing anyone's conduct on Cherokee land. So if you were white, black, Asian, it didn't matter if you were a citizen of France or Georgia or the Cherokee Nation, it didn't matter if you committed a crime on Cherokee land, you'd be arrested and prosecuted by Cherokee Nation. Uh, that was the case until 1978 when the Supreme Court said, actually, tribes can't exercise criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians. It's, it's, I could go into the particulars of the decision, but as far as I'm concerned, it's just based on prejudice. Um, <laughs> Chief Justice Rehnquist cited an 1823 case called Johnson v. McIntosh, where in 1823, the Supreme Court said tribes can no longer claim legal title to their lands. And in doing that in Oliphant in 1978, the Supreme Court just said, well, look, if they can't claim legal title to their lands, how can they exercise jurisdiction over it? Well, if you read that 1823 case, the Supreme Court in 1823 said, we can't claim legal title to our lands because we're literally, quote, racially inferior, savages and heathens who don't worship Christ. So that was the basis for the 1823 decision that's never been overturned and formed the basis of the 1978 decision that took away our inherent criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians. So since then, the rates of violence against Native women have skyrocketed, and the Department of Justice reported that, you know, today Native women face the highest rates of domestic violence, sexual assault, murder, stalking, sex trafficking. The majority of these crimes committed against our people are committed by non-Indians, but the Supreme Court has said we can't exercise jurisdiction over them. So in 2013, the Supreme Court restored a piece of that tribal criminal jurisdiction that had been erased, um, specifically for non-Indian perpetrated crimes of domestic violence, dating violence, and violation of protection orders, but only those crimes. Well, sovereignty is the story of what happens when a non-Indian is arrested and prosecuted for domestic violence in a tribal court and is sentenced to three years in jail and takes challenges through habeas corpus all the way to the United States Supreme Court and says, no, 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 no. No tribe can exercise criminal jurisdiction over a Amer- non-Indian American citizen. That is unconstitutional and violates my rights as a United States citizen. So that's the argument in sovereignty. And, of course, I wrote it. So uh, Cherokee Nation wins. And <laughs> and and but but um, th- that's really relevant to today um, because right now VAWA is a law that has to get reauthorized every five years. And just yesterday. No, wait. What is today? my brain i've been like traveling and life has been crazy thank you friday so on wednesday (laughs) wait wednesday or was it yesterday i'm sorry i've been traveling and everything's boring in the last 48 hours (laughs) congress uh 
the House reauthorized the Violence Against Women Act with tribal jurisdiction provisions that restore tribal criminal jurisdiction over non-Indian perpetrated crimes against Native children, tribal law enforcement, and now for sexual assault, which wasn't restored before, and sex trafficking. These are critical pieces of restored tribal criminal jurisdiction that will save lives in Indian country. It's passed the House. Now we're on to the Senate. So if you're listening and you feel compelled, call your senator. Tell your senator you want to see the House version of the Violence Against Women Act that was just passed, passed in the Senate. You want, and specifically, you want to see tribal jurisdiction restored. You're for the tribal jurisdiction provisions, and that will go such a long ways towards um, saving lives in Indian country. And that's, but that's a large piece of my play, Sovereignty, which actually will, I'm very excited to announce, will get its second production at the Marin Theater Company, just um, out in Mill Valley, California. It's just across the bay, um, just across the bridge, the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco in California. And that will be, um, it'll open on October 1st, 2019. And then, and sooner than that, we can see on April 19th, Mm -hmm. Crossing Minishoshi. Um, and the previews start on April 13th and the opening is April 19th and it's in Portland at Portland Center Stage. So if anyone is headed out to the West Coast uh, in the next few months, I hope you'll I hope you'll check it out. Um, it's I think it'll be a very strong play and I know um, the actors are working very hard on it as we speak. Well, Mary Catherine, thanks so much for talking today. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for creating this opportunity and space for me to talk about all these issues. Come back anytime. I would love to. <laughs> um, Mary Catherine Nagel, the 2019 Robert F. Burkhofer Jr. Lecturer, Native Theater in the 21st Century, Piercing the Invisibility and Restoring Our Humanity. You've been listening to Living Writers. Thanks to Steph Behind the Glass. Many thanks to Mary Catherine Nagel. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Thanks for listening to this episode from the archives with Mary Catherine Nagel in 2019. This week, the WCBN community lost a valued member. Hello and welcome to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN FM Ann Arbor here on Wednesday, November 9th. My name is Jake Singer and I'm here with my colleagues Vihan Iswar and William Gregory. How are you doing this evening? Pretty good. Pretty good. That's awesome. Well, we got a lot on tap for you tonight. We're going to talk football, both college and NFL football. 
Bihan, William, I'm going to start off with you guys. I really want to focus on Michigan football, first of all, because the college football playoff rankings came out last night. Michigan jumped from number five to number three in that ranking. Part of it was due to University of Tennessee losing to Georgia this weekend, as well as a few other shakeups, including Alabama losing again, too. So I just want to talk to you both, first of all. What do you think about Michigan's ranking at number three? Do you think that was a good spot for Michigan? And do you think they will be able to continue and stay there at least until Ohio State? I think it's, I think it's a fair ranking. Um, I, obviously, we're a great team. We've definitely shown it by remaining unbeaten so far. But if there is an issue, it's the fact that we seem to not start off games as well as we should. There's this pattern of being slow in the first half and then exploding into life in the second half, which is good, obviously, but against teams like Ohio State, that might not cut it. We're going to need to consistently play a strong game throughout. I think it's pretty obvious um, that Michigan is the number three team in the country when you look at the other undefeated teams still left. Uh, I'm of the mind that if a Power 5 team is undefeated this late in the year, they deserve to be in the playoff, and I think that works for TCU. They might not have had the greatest, excuse me, the greatest strength of schedule, but um, they've beat everyone that has been put in front of them. And there's a number of teams where you can't say that. Um, and I, th- I think Michigan is third out of those teams. I-, 